don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome, this is the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. Kevin Barrett, waging the Truth Jihad, a.k.a. the all-out struggle for truth here on the Internet radio airwaves since 2006. And my website is truthjihad.com. I have a substack, kevinbarrett.substack.com. And if you subscribe at my substack, you will get early access to these shows. What kind of shows are they, you may ask? Well, we like to talk about everything that you're not supposed to talk about in polite company or in the mainstream media. So the more taboo it is, and the more it has to be interesting, too. It can't just be stupid, you know, like fart jokes, maybe taboo in certain quarters, but we're not going to sit here and do that for two hours. Oh, no, we're going to talk about stuff like, well, in the second hour, Ken Meyercord will come on to extend the conversation from what people like Dave Chappelle have been talking about regarding uh, Kyrie and Kanye and all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, that's totally taboo. You can lose billions of dollars if you say the wrong thing about those topics, or at least... Somebody can. I I don't think I have it to lose, but somebody can. And in the first hour, we're going to talk about another, well, perhaps taboo topic. It depends how intelligently you talk about it, and that is perpetual motion. Energy from the vacuum. I suppose if you say that energy from the vacuum actually exists, you take your vacuum cleaner and you switch the hoses around, and then you plug it back in, and now the energy from your vacuum cleaner will actually flow back into the grid, and uh, and add to the net power available to do useful work in your community, that would be crazy enough and stupid enough that they would let you say it and you wouldn't have any problems. On the other hand, if you actually invented something that worked, well, the men in black might just pay you a visit. At least that's been the kind of report that I've heard from all sorts of folks, uh, not just Procter Gamble and people like that who know some of these people. I've actually I met somebody who's... Uh, Father, I believe it was, uh, got a visit from the men in black after doing some research on free energy. So it, you know, maybe it's a legitimate topic. And one of the more intelligent pieces I've seen on this topic is a recent article from Josh Middledorf called Energy from the Vacuum. And Josh notices that some mainstream academicians like Garrett Modal of the University of Colorado and Daniel Sheehan of UC San Diego, that's not the same Danny Sheehan from the Christic Institute, but a very different one, have been well, uh, putting out some very interesting free energy-related science. And Josh actually understands the science. So uh, I'm not sure I do. That's why I'm going to have to let him do some of the talking. So, hey, hey, welcome, Josh Middledorf. How are you doing, Josh? Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's always good to have you back. So, yeah, I, I really appreciate your writing. It's it's really, really good science writing. And it's it's I'm just privileged to be able to interview people like you who are too smart for the mainstream. Uh, I don't know how that works. But anyway, the free energy topic is one of those topics that the mainstream tells us it's all, oh, that's all just a bunch of cranks, just like the, uh, the psi, PSI, you know, psychic uh, stuff. And it turns out the psi is totally proven scientifically, and the free energy is maybe not proven, but pretty interesting looking. So we're talking about a taboo topic here. I don't know if we should start by talking about why it's taboo or just plunge into the uh, details on how it's starting to leak into the mainstream. Where where would you like to start? Well, a little bit of my history. 
I was a straight scientist until the mid-1990s, and I discovered that the selfish gene theory of evolution is just one small part of the picture. And if you believe that selfish gene is all there is to evolution, you're looking at <laughs> um, you're looking at only one small, small part of evolution. I call it Darwin in a straitjacket. So I was amazed. Science made a mistake. The whole scientific community is in on this. I spent a year researching evolution, going taking evolution courses before I would get out and say, you know, I, I think they've got it wrong about this. And ever since I've discovered it's not so uncommon for the scientific community to get caught in its dogmas. And uh, I think there's nothing more interesting than those places where the scientific community as a whole has believed its dogmas and shut out scientific evidence that uh, leads us to believe there are whole worlds uh, waiting to be discovered. Right. And, and it's supposed to be self-correcting, although Thomas Kuhn in the Structure of Scientific Revolution says that you have to wait till all the people who believe the old wrong paradigm die off before there's a paradigm shift. <laughs> but Yeah, it was um, Max Planck who said that originally. You know, he invented the quantum pr principle in 1904 and nobody would believe him. And it, it was really frustrating. It was 20 years before... Uh, the, before quantum physics became mainstream. And imagine uh, Einstein and Planck were the only people who were talking about the quantum as a basic fact of physics. Yeah, well, I, I followed the psi research a bit. I studied it quite a bit when I was back in high school in the late 1970s. And since then, it seems that the actual research has gone forward quite a bit. But the mainstream approach to it has actually gone backward. That is, you know, back then, uh, the mainstream was split maybe 50-50 about whether this evidence was real or not. And many of the leading authorities admitted that it was real and that Psy obviously exists. And now that's been proven even more than it was back then. But the mainstream seems to be even more in denial about it. So that's that's a puzzling one. Uh, it's going to be longer than 20 years before <laughs> that one uh, gets uh, corrected. I don't, I, I don't know what happened. Um, I know a little of the history that William James and uh, Crooks, the the guy who invented the the vacuum tube, and a, a bunch of mainstream scientists all believed in uh, psychic phenomena and were charter members of the British Psychical Society uh, back in the early 20th century. And somehow uh, that became too hot to handle. The reasons for suppressing it, uh, and anybody's guess, I guess that's, that's your business more than mine. Freud I, I had, had a lot to do with this because he, he discovered just in his own experience as a therapist that uh, precognition, tel telepathy were quite real. And yet he was unwilling to write about it publicly because he had enough trouble just getting psychoanalysis accepted as a scientific uh, practice without uh, dragging in the paranormal. 
and I believe Jung uh, was more willing to talk about it. And there, that Absolutely. was part of the problem. Jung, the uh, <laughs> yeah. So Jung laid a foundation for it with both theory and with uh, stories that are hard to explain and still fascinating. Right. But, but it, it is odd that the, here's a field where the science progresses considerably and the mainstream acceptance of the whole field actually deteriorates. And, and with the, uh, the, the free energy field, it seems that maybe that's not the case. That is, the science seems to be progressing, or at least we're seeing sort of more and more interesting items that show up. And the mainstream denial that such a thing could exist doesn't really seem to be increasing the way it is with Psy. So I wonder what's going on there. Uh, maybe that was a lead into talking about these guys uh, that you were writing about, Garrett Modell, Daniel Sheehan, and these other mainstream scientists who are playing around with free energy. I do believe that the scientific community is self-correcting. Even if it takes a generation, it's more reality-based than politics or religion or uh, and any of the other major areas of culture. Uh, it's hard to keep scientific truth buried for a long time, although science is politicized and over a period as long as a generation or in, in some cases several generations, scientific truth can be hidden. So I don't know what's happening now, and I, we can speculate together about why this is being suppressed. But I, I, I want to start by listing some of the reasons why I take infinite energy devices seriously when most people with any common sense say this is all nonsense. It's forbidden by the second law of thermodynamics. It's not worth looking into. And just to list them, and we'll, we'll come back and um, – Go into detail on any one of these as, as you as you direct the conversation. So the first one is my experience with cold fusion. Cold fusion is also denied by the mainstream, and I have direct experience. I've visited cold fusion labs. I've seen the data, and I know that cold fusion is real. The second is the stories about UFOs that you can read now in the New York Times, finally a few years ago. Uh, decided is worth, I guess five years ago now, decided that it's real enough to be worth reporting about. And uh, vehicles that make uh, 90 degree turns at tremendous speeds and do accept accelerations that just are impossible to explain with conventional physics. Um, the, the third reason I have is very familiar to you, I'm sure, the experience we have with government censorship and cover-ups of all kinds of things from the Kennedy assassination to COVID to 9-11 to many other assassinations, many things that they just don't want us to know. So um, the the fourth, I've heard enough about Operation Paperclip, about uh, secret Nazi research being absorbed into our own DARPA defense advanced research projects uh, and, and again just being buried becoming secret that I, I wonder what they know that we don't know uh, number five is Tesla and all the stories that we hear 
about Tesla's last decades in which he was developing all kinds of advanced technologies that were purloined and uh, made uh, secret when his notebooks were stolen at his death, uh, stolen by the FBI. Um, the story of Bob Lazar, who's a, an eyewitness to some of these technologies who got very scared when uh, he was caught uh, exposing his his friends to some of these advanced te technologies at Lockheed Skunk Works, I think it was, um, and just came out in public and told us what he saw. Um, and the last thing is the ancient megaliths, these uh, huge stones that were cut and moved into place by somebody in the ancient past. And we don't know what they used for an energy source, but we can guess that it wasn't fossil fuels because fossil fuels were pretty much untouched until the 19th century when uh, oil was really easy to discover. Uh, we know it wasn't nuclear because there are no nuclear waste dumps from the ancient past. What did they use for energy and when will we rediscover it? So those are that's a list of my reasons for taking these stories about infinite energy seriously. Yeah, those are all uh, interesting points. As far as why this would be covered up, I suppose a mainstream educated person might say that oh, this is all very improbable because as far as we know, whenever there's an advance in technology, it gets quickly grabbed up and used because somebody always can gain a little bit extra power and wealth by using it and, and fame and th things like that. So there's no way to really keep it under wraps. And if we look at the history of military technology, for example, uh, very directly involved in, in power grabbing, we see that it spreads pretty rapidly, you know, that whatever efforts are made to keep new military technologies in the hands of one side uh, don't seem to la work for very long. So the thinking would be that if these kinds of technologies had been discovered by someone, uh, Tesla, for example, that somebody would quickly grab them and use them because whoever used them would gain an edge. And if that's not the case, if something different from that is going on, if, if somebody is suppressing this stuff, maybe has it secretly, but isn't using it openly, that would be uh, a situation I don't think we've is I don't is there any sort of open historical record of anything like that ever happening? Well, of course it's not open and historical <laughs> because they kept a secret. Well, wait, 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 wait. no, if, if somebody kept something secret for five hundred years in the past, it might have been, you know they might keep a secret for for however long, but then it would it would be revealed eventually. But we do we know of anything like that from the past? Well, here, here's one. I I know they were working on small nuclear bombs, and the first nuclear bombs had to be critical mass. So there were many kilotons that was the minimum size for an atomic bomb. And already in the 1960s, they were talking about miniaturized nuclear weapons and bunker busters and, quote, usable nuclear weapons. And then the talk of that went away and are we to believe that there was no progress in that area at all in the last 60 years well um, look at the 
flash explosion in Beirut uh, three years ago, I think it was. Um, it was blamed on fertilizer that was stockpiled in the port of Beirut. And ammonium nitrate burns. It burns rapidly. It releases a lot of energy, but it doesn't explode like that. It doesn't create a huge flash. Uh, my guess is that there was a mini nuke that was exploded in Beirut. Uh, I, I believe that there were other situations in the Middle East where uh, that kind of flash appeared. Uh, so maybe there's an example. Yes, of, absolutely. No, nobody wants to acknowledge that there are, there are mini nukes and that there's now a slippery slope between conventional warfare and nuclear warfare, which is terrifying in its own way. They have very good reasons for keeping that secret. Uh, but maybe that's an example of the hidden technology you're talking about. That's an excellent example. I actually just had Bruce Baird on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about that, and I'm sure he would agree with everything that you just said. And that perhaps illustrates the reason why these kinds of technologies might be kept secret by uh, some entity that knew about them, because they might be too dangerous. You know, that entity might be absolutely devoted to keeping these technologies from spreading too fast due to the, you know, the terrible consequences that they would imagine could happen uh, if they spread. And that could be true for many nukes. It seems seemingly is true. Uh, as, as you say, obviously there's been a lot of development there, but it's all been sort of scrubbed from the record or especially over the past few decades. Uh, and one would think that perhaps it, these free energy technologies uh, conceivably anything that can create energy theoretically if you could make it create a lot of energy very quickly you've got a bomb and there are rumors that these kinds of technologies might be too easy to weaponize that somebody could build a bomb in the basement that could blow up the planet that sort of thing so that would of course require uh, anybody who knew about it to probably try to make sure that uh, it didn't get out and perhaps with the psi technology, too, that that might be the sort of thing that those who had access to it would find very dangerous uh, to to be getting out into the world. So, um, yeah, maybe maybe this sort of thing is just, you know, we've, we're talking about technologies that are either are so dangerous or are believed to be or considered so dangerous by the people who have a handle on them already that they have gone to great lengths to try to prevent people from talking about them. So here we are talking about them. <laughs> are the men in black yeah, in your door yet? <laughs> I, I don't know. But uh, th you've raised a lot of issues there. And uh, before we get deep into conspiracy stuff, we should not neglect the obvious. Um, the world runs on fossil fuels there are trillions of dollars of fossil fuels in the ground. The whole wealth of Saudi Arabia is, and many countries in the Middle East depends on that uh, oil. There are huge companies that are very powerful that um, will lose their uh, financial uh, basis completely if alternative energy that's clean and cheap becomes available. So you don't have to get too far into the weeds. 
to see why this technology would be suppressed. And it's also true what, what you say, um, Pons and Fleischmann the, the, were the inventors of cold fusion in 1989, and they were very cautious about announcing what they'd seen. And the thing that really turned them around is they were, you know, and now we really have to publish something was when they came home from a, they came back to the lab after a weekend away and they found that their device had melted through the lab table and made a four foot hole in the concrete underneath. And they said, this is pretty positive energy that we've unleashed something here more than the electrochemical energy that um, you would expect from the device that they were using. Uh, it, it was that that convinced them that there was certainly nuclear energy involved. Uh, so that more than hints that if we master this technology, if the use of cold fusion, let alone zero point energy, becomes uh, popular, becomes well-publicized, that somebody in his basement will be able to turn this into a, a, a bomb that uh, destroys Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I'm sure that's a, a nightmare for the uh, security people. Of course, they're in the business of making sure the only, they're the ones who build the bombs that blow people up. They don't want anybody else to. <laughs> um so, well, yeah. for us too, I, I, I've been hesitant to talk about this. It's, um, is it irresponsible? I, I believe that getting the truth out is what I'm about as, as a renegade scientist. But in this case, uh, maybe there are good, good arguments for keeping this technology secret. I've been raising Jason Giorgiani in the last couple of weeks, who just has uh, an unusual take about everything. And it's deeply grounded in history and philosophy and uh, history of religion. And he says there's an advanced race of controllers who have all this technology, the psi technology as well as the physical technology. And they don't think that humanity is ready to handle it. They think... Uh, they better keep it to themselves because uh, humanity would just make a mess if this was released. And what Giorgiani says is it's our job to prove them wrong. It's not so obvious that they're wrong. You turn people into gods. What kind of gods will we be? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, of course, yeah, would we still be as driven as we are now if we had the kind of economic security that we might have if we had uh, free energy. That's a you know an interesting question. That, that it's, it's some people are very optimistic about how people you know human nature will adjust to uh, to you know to plenty and and to you know to leisure and so on by uh, kind of relaxing and becoming less aggressively competitive and less violent and egotistical. And uh, then there are others who who doubt that. Uh, noting that uh, the egotistical, violent, greedy, aggressive people seem to be running empires and behaving very badly 
even when they themselves are pretty secure economically. So we might have to solve that kind of problem uh, before we can responsibly unleash uh, that kind of, of power. Uh, uh, but I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that truth is the guiding principle uh, of ethics and uh, deliberately concealing truth is uh, almost you know, almost always the the wrong way to go. So most and it of, doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. You, you, can't, you can't do it for very long, especially in the days of the internet. Maybe you could in the uh, 14th century when uh, you had the church's authority and word of mouth, but um, you, you can't keep the truth bottled up for very long. But who are these so, people who've been arguing that we're going to need uh, total surveillance of everybody, you know, 24/7, 365, to make sure that nobody tries to sneak down to their basement and build an energy device that could blow up Manhattan? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? These these uh, futures. Yeah, and so I, on. I'm right. It's uh, it's coming. The G20 had a meeting just yesterday, which they announced. Uh, well, we're going to need vaccine passports, uh, and uh, I'm. I'm as appalled by that stuff as as you are. Uh, we don't need centralized control over our every move, and and yet I I think uh, Giorgiani is right. It's up to us to prove them wrong, to say that to prove that uh, humanity as a whole is ready to handle the technologies that could either bring leisure to everybody and make a peaceful and prosperous world or else give a few people the um, the opportunity to turn their psychosis into uh, massive destruction mm-hmm. well it, it's interesting that at the same moment right now that the mainstream media is starting to take the whole issue of ufos and ets seriously the academy seemingly may be getting more uh, interested in free energy. Uh, and that's what you just published about. Uh, I don't know to, too much about that. I have, of course, been following the New York Times with its UFO stories, but I haven't really been following the academic scientific discussion of these different free energy issues. Uh, so, But you, you did mention these two scientists, and you concluded your article by saying that it does seem that this topic is starting to bubble up in the mainstream academy. So, yeah, yeah t- so, uh, tell me more Nadelle about that. is the one I'd, I'd like to talk about. I, I'm okay. not sure that Sheehan has something real. Mm-hmm. And I just talked to Modell a couple hours ago. I succeeded in reaching him on the phone. So I, I feel very excited about what he's doing. I, I've heard him speak. I've read his papers. He seems modest and credible, so... I want to describe a little, a little bit of the what he's done and why it's important and why it's credible. So, so among the strange physical effects that are well-known and well-accepted is the Casimir effect. Um, if you put two um, conducting plates like mirrors or just very shiny surfaces – very close together, they attract each other. There's no reason to think that they would attract each other uh, because both of them are electrically neutral. They have equal numbers of positive and negative charges. Um, But one one way to think about what's happening is that there are quantum fluctuations that make a little bit more um, 
negative charge on one. And at the same time, there's a motive to have a little more negative, positive charge on the other and vice versa. When one fluctuates positive, the other fluctuates negative. This is a van der Waals kind of force, and it makes these two um, plates attract each other. And it's a very tiny effect, but it becomes large as the plates get very close together. Well, how do you make the plates flat enough to get them very close together? And what does this have to do with uh, actually extracting energy from it? I mean, a force is not enough to give you an energy. You have to be able to move the force and keep moving it. And as I say, the force only becomes large when the plates are very close together. And uh, you know, once they touch, your game is over. Uh, so there's another way of looking at the Casimir effect, which is, again, classical uh, quantum mechanics. And that is that the vacuum is full of all kinds of particles being created and destroyed and in particular electromagnetic waves in all frequencies that pop in and out of existence. And when you have this narrow cavity that's um, that has parallel conducting phases on each side, then it constrains what kind of uh, electromagnetic waves can exist in there. So the vacuum is in a sense more of a vacuum between these two plates than it is everywhere else. And this huge virtual energy that exists everywhere else is less in the vacuum. And there's a sense in which the overwhelming amount of energy in the regular vacuum wants to go into this tiny space between the, the plates. And what Modell has done is to set up a device. That, it, it looks like a a chip that you might fabricate with layers just a few atoms thick of silicon. His layers are not silicon, they're conducting materials um, and insulating materials in layers. And the insulating materials are thin enough that electrons get through them by quantum tunneling, you know, how, how in quantum mechanics an electron can disappear here and reappear. If it's close enough, uh, it can go through a vacuum or go through an insulator and reappear. So using that kind of effect, he has, Modell has um, created a tiny device which has a voltage across it even when nothing is happening and you can draw a current from it and nothing is uh, so you're drawing power from it even with nothing connected to it uh, this is the definition of a perpetual motion machine it's something for nothing the guess is we don't have a complete theory of it but the guess is that energy is being extracted from the vacuum and made useful. Um, we don't know if that's the right explanation, but we do know that um, he's got this device the size of two tiny pins that are just barely separated from each other at their points, and it produces uh, tiny, tiny amounts of electricity. Um, so 
the next steps for this are one to replication. And I just spoke to him. He said replication is going well. He can't announce it yet, but he has national laboratories who are replicating his results. And uh, sometime in the next few months, that will be a major paper in which it's announced that this is not just in Modell's lab at Colorado, but has been reproduced elsewhere. And then, of course, the big thing is, well, how can you scale this up? Uh, it's not very useful if it's a microscopic device. And that requires making surfaces that are very, very flat and depositing materials on them that are different from silicon, which is we have a lot of experience from uh, microchip fabrication plants where they d routinely deposit just a few atoms thick worth of silicon or silicon dioxide or doped silicon. They're really good at that. So we need to do that with other materials and create these interfaces that are um, just a few atoms thick and um, macroscopic in size. Maybe a, a square meter would produce a, a useful amount of electricity. Well, how do you create something that's like a, a chip and has that precision, but is um, macroscopic in in size and mass producing it. It's it's a whole new technology, but it's not. It, it's a technical challenge. It's not a scientific challenge. Uh, if this turns out to be real, scaling it up should be quite feasible if we threw the kind of uh, resources and technology at it that we have at, say, manufacturing computer chips. So that, that's the story of Modell and uh, what, what he's done. I, I think it's far and away the most exciting thing to come along in the alternative energy field. The Casimir effect. Interesting. Well, that doesn't sound like the kind of thing that we'd really have to worry that much about somebody going down in their basement and trying to make these really flat surfaces. I mean, I, I've tried to make flat surfaces in my basement with sandpaper and, and a plane <laughs> and things like that. And right. I'm pretty sure I've never gotten anything close enough to, uh, you know, permit the Casimir effect. And I don't, I could stay in my basement for the rest of my life. And I don't think I would ever succeed at that. So, so I don't think anybody's going to blow up the world by making really, really, really flat surfaces in their basement. That's a good point. Um, and it's a reason perhaps why his device has been allowed to come out, whereas something like cold fusion, which is now 30 years old and very well established in hundreds of labs around the world, has still been kept under wraps and it's a taboo to publish it in mainstream journals. Interesting. <laughs> so maybe we, you know, we'll have to discover dozens and dozens of free energy devices before finally there's one that's so safe that they'll let us use yeah. it. <laughs> oh man. Uh, okay. So, uh, that, well, that, that's interesting. And so people, you know, listening to the show, uh, are getting a preview of news that may be breaking in a few months, I guess, when the paper comes out and maybe the New York Times uh, science writers will tell us about it. Who knows? Uh, I hope so. I, when I spoke to Modell a little while ago, I said, you know, this stuff should be publishable in Nature, the world's foremost journal, which has a, a history of publishing speculative experimental results, although not speculative theory. Uh, they do publish stuff like this. And 
he is not only barred from publishing in Nature, he can't get into a mainstream physics journal, and he's published his results in the Journal of Scientific Exploration, which is, uh, you know, it's a fringe journal. It's it's for people who have wild ideas, and most of them are wrong, most of them are quacks, and some of them are really good. Mm. So here's another story while we're on Journal of Scientific Exploration. I know that journal because I knew Robert John, J-A-H-N, in the 1970s and 80s when he was doing his research at the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Laboratory. Um, He was a mainstream rocket scientist and dean of the School of Engineering and discovered by accident that um, parapsychology is real. And he thought this is more interesting than anything else he's doing. And he designed rigorous experiments. He knows how to do the physics. He knows how to do the statistics. He knows how to make an experiment bulletproof. For 30 years, he ran experiments proving that the human psyche has an effect on what quantum mechanics calls completely random. Well, it's not random. It can be affected by uh, human intention in the abstract. And he was not allowed. He had a horrific experience with the mainstream. Not only didn't they allow him to publish in um, physics or engineering journals, where his stuff is clearly worthy of a Nobel Prize. Uh, But uh, mainstream journalists uh, spread rumors that he was crazy. They tried to get him detenured at Princeton. Uh, They cast doubts about his aerospace engineering, where he was very highly respected and well-established before he started any of this. And he lived out uh, his life, he died a few years ago, but um, lived out those last 30 years of his life in a, in a shadow created by um, being too successful at a demonstrating an effect that uh, mainstream science wasn't re- ready to accept yet. Isn't there a new book out about him or something? I think I remember seeing a review of a, a, a book about him. Um, I don't know that don't know that book maybe not yeah but, he it, yeah. he published a book called margins of reality with his partner who was uh, skilled and uh, skilled at psychology and parapsychology and just making people feel comfortable in designing environments in which parapsychology could happen it was just a wonderful partnership brenda dunn and Robert John, uh, but um, John provided the rigor and Brenda provided the human environment that made people feel comfortable enough that they could produce these psychic effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how that topic is, is so hot. It's sometimes hard to tell whether there's some nefarious intent behind uh, smearing people like John and anybody else who takes this seriously and, and just, you know, basically it's really not that complicated. I, I mean, when I was in high school, I was able to look at what was out there at that time and conclude that it was, 
just obvious that the scientists had proven that Psy is real. And yes. it's, I mean, it's not, it's not, you don't really have to be, uh, at, at Robert John's level to figure this out. And yet there's such pushback and it's, it's hard to tell whether it's an organized effort by some special interest or maybe a lot of it is just a kind of a reaction from people who've been conditioned to be materialists and they've kind of become devout, uh, fundamentalist materialists and it threatens their worldview sort of like, you know, heresy threatens certain kinds of religious people and they uh, react sort of the way the Spanish Inquisition did. I, I think that's just right that um, since the 19th century, reductionist materialism has played the role of a religion in Western society and uh, people were dogmatic about it. They think it's just unscientific to imagine anything that like psi like uh, parapsychology could possibly be real and of, of course the true spirit of science is we look at the world we look at the data we do the experiments we don't decide what's got to be real based on our theories we modify our theories to fit the experiment rather than the other way around so um, there's Two tracks of science. I mean, the, the true scientists who've carried the scientific spirit forward are open to this revolution that's coming uh, where mind and matter have got to be taken into account as both fundamental. And there's the mainstream of the scientific establishment that calls itself science, but uh, which has uh, walls up against anything that is too threatening to their paradigms. Well, interestingly, I had Dean Radin on the show a few years ago. It was during the COVID period, early COVID period. And of course, he's one of the leading parapsychologists, the people who study psi phenomena, and he's written some very good books on it. And he's also one of the people who've done these kinds of random number generator tests that show that consciousness actually affects random number generators. One of them was uh, running uh, before and during and after 9-11 and showed this huge spike right before 9-11. So something interesting was happening with uh, with consciousness affecting these random number generators. But anyway, I, so I interviewed him, and I what I found odd was that he simultaneously believes that ultimately uh, healing through psychic means is likely to replace uh, mechanistic medicine. And, okay, I agree with that. But then he was not at all open to questioning the mainstream medical paradigm about COVID. And that kind of threw me for a loop because it seems to me that part of the reason that we had this uh, kind of fanatical uh, witch hunt against the unvaccinated and insistence that everybody had to not wear masks until Fauci said, oh, no, actually, masks do work. Uh, you know, <laughs> so then everybody had to put on their mask. This kind of uh, mindless obedience to uh, a materialistic science-based medicine uh, strikes me as a perfect illustration of the, of the whole problem of, of this materialism as a fundamentalist fake religion. And yet Dean Radin, who is really the the main man in terms of challenging 
that religion as a religion by showing that the universe is not described accurately by materialism is still on the side of, you know, everybody should get vaccinated and wear masks. So I, that kind of threw me for a loop. I, I've noticed the same thing. I, I know Dean and, uh, I've noticed the same thing that you do. I, I should say that if there's anybody in the world who has done more to move science toward this uh, post-reductionist framework. I don't know who it is. Dean Radin is just magnificent in the rigor of his work. And also he's such a good communicator. His, if you see any of his videos or read any of his books, he's so convincing and so compelling. And he takes the hard science and delivers it at a level that people at all levels of uh, education can understand it. Uh, it. It's rigorous if you want to go into the details and it's just magic if you listen to um, listen to the results as he describes them qualitatively. Um, so yes, he's a tremendous asset and I've noticed the same thing that you do. He's, he, he can't imagine that 9-11 was a, a, <laughs> a false flag. Um, I, you know, I wonder if the same thing is going on in the it's, – it's not just Raiden. It's the whole community of parapsychology that has bought into the COVID deception, uh, hook, line, and sinker. Maybe so the same thing that I described with uh, with um, with Freud, that when you're trying to push the envelope in one area, you just want to be completely conventional in other areas to keep your credibility high. And uh, maybe they think that they, by uh, going along with the COVID narrative, it creates more of a platform for them to um, expose the world to parapsychology. Mm -hmm. But as you say, these people are supposed to be open-minded scientists, and in some areas they really are. And uh, it's baffling to me that uh, something as obvious as the physics of 9-11 or the, um, the fact that vaccines for COVID don't work and early treatments like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine do work. These are so obvious. If you look at the science at all, why is it that independent scientists are not able to see that? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's odd. Well, I can kind of relate to that though, because when I got sort of fresh in the limelight around nine 11, I both intuitively understood. And then I also Got, had some unsolicited advice from a leading PR professional who just called me at home and, and, uh, explained that the more radical your message, the more conservative you should look as you deliver it and this sort of thing. So, and, and that resonated with my intuitive understanding that the way to try to bring something like 9-11 truth into the mainstream would not necessarily be by adopting lots and lots of uh, wild and crazy anti-establishmentarian positions on all sorts of other things at the same time. Of course, the problem was I already knew a lot of things. I knew about Psy, I knew about the JFK coup and things like that. 
Um, so it's, it's kind of hard for me to pose as somebody who believes the mainstream on everything except 9-11. <laughs> and, uh, once I started, you know, got forced out of the academy and had to do this radio show, then it, it became kind of easier to talk about all these other things too. Um, for, you know, because obviously I'm not going to destroy the 9-11 truth movement just by talking about all these other topics. But yeah, I can sort of see how people like Dean would sort of feel that way. And it's, it's that old, uh, line about how it's a hard to get a man to see something if his paycheck depends upon him not seeing it. And that all operates at an unconscious level. And so it's not like, you know, people like Dean are being deceitful uh, or lying to us. Oh, or I have no, yeah, I have no doubt that he's completely sincere. Yeah. But uh, uh, another example of what you're talking about is um, Jeffrey Sachs. I don't know yeah. if you've followed oh, yeah, what's yeah, happened he's, recently. He's on so a roll. F- for two years, I, I'll, I'll boast that I was one of the people very early on, already in February of 2020, I was saying, this is a bioweapon. You look at the genome, it's a bioweapon. Me too. And of course, you know, this was brushed aside, and this is conspiracy theory, and how can you say that stuff? You're anti-Chinese. <laughs> well, we don't know if it's really a Chinese or an American bioweapon, but that's besides the point. Um, this, even as it became obvious to anybody who looked at the genome, uh, if so, this was a taboo subject until along comes Jeffrey Sachs. And Jeffrey Sachs is deep in the establishment and has done some questionable things in his role of trying to um, reform the uh, the third world and make them safe for capitalism. So he's paid his dues. And when he says COVID is a bioweapon, then he gets headlines that none of the rest of us can get precisely because he's been so well aligned with the mainstream for so many years. Mm-hmm. Well, they even invited him on to let him say that uh, the U.S. blew up Nord Stream. Uh, that was quite the video of his I, I expression. I didn't know that. Yeah, I don't know if you – well, you should, you, Josh, you should definitely uh, probably – I would say Google it, but except that might not work. So maybe you should Yandex it because Yandex <laughs> is the Russian search engine that actually helps you find these such things. And watch Jeffrey Sachs uh, uh, blow the mind of the interviewer by uh, saying that the U.S. blew up Nord Stream. And then he makes, <laughs> makes, a, makes a face. It's just hilarious. Uh, so, yeah, wow. he's, he's really on a roll. Um, yeah, truth bombs from the <laughs> from the most unexpected of places. Yeah, I, I wish more people would Meryl do that. Nass, and he's, he's... who keeps warning us not to trust Jeffrey Sachs, uh, <laughs> warning us about his history. But there's no question in, that in the present month and in the present environment, he's been a real asset, and he's gotten an ear for causes that uh, mm-hmm. we could never get into the mainstream otherwise without him. Yeah, I don't know why Merrill is, is quite that uh, antagonized by him. It's not like he's running for president and asking for all of us to, you know, vote for him or, you know, to, we're, it's, it's, it's not like he's, he's doing something that us saying something, you know, positive about his speaking the truth about, you know, COVID or, or the, the Ukraine war. It's it's like what what's how, what does it hurt if we say yeah go Jeffrey Sachs you know yeah Dude, break some more I, taboos I, go I, for it I, I feel that way but <laughs> of, of course the biggest uh, skeleton in his closet from our point of view is that he, he after the collapse of the Soviet Union it was really Jeffrey Sachs more than anybody who imposed the capitalist uh, shock therapy that destroyed the. Uh, Russian economy for 20 years. Um, 
we could pin that on Jeffrey Stack. Of course, the whole U.S. government was uh, complicit in that, and the, the CIA was doing its best to make sure that nobody competent came to power after Gorbachev. But um, Jeffrey Sachs was a, a cheerleader for that and did some engineering behind the scenes. I, I think that's the worst thing that you can say about Jeffrey Sachs and his history. Right. But the fact that somebody has an establishment history, which implies being on board with bad things, uh, doesn't make it less of a good thing when the person with the establishment history breaks with the establishment and starts telling the truth. I mean, I would like yeah, to see I more agree. of them do it. Yeah, it's uh, in, in the past there have been sort of people on the edge of the establishment, like Richard Falk, for example, who was, I believe, he was on CFR for a while, and uh, you know these these international law people. Uh, Francis Boyle, I think, was marginally establishment for a while until started talking about Palestine a little too much. But yeah, usually it's it's been those sort of marginal people who tell truth. David Ray Griffin even was, you know, very mainstream and, and respected in his field. And then John Cobb, who worked with him. A religious Christ. scholar of all things. Yeah, yeah. Those, so those guys are also very, uh, uh, you know, mainstream uh, accomplished, uh, but still in, you know, a, a sort of a, a more uh, marginal way. Something like Jeffrey Sachs is sort of right smack in the middle of, of, mainstream, of the mainstream. And that makes it really interesting when he breaks ranks. Uh, so... Yeah, uh, we, we certainly could use more of that. So what's going to be the big breakthrough? Where, when are, you know, which, which of these taboos is going to get shredded first? Are they going to admit that UFOs are real? Are they going to admit that psi is real? Are they going to admit that cold fusion or free energy is real? Or, uh, that 9-11 was an inside job? Or what, which of these <laughs> taboo issues is going to have the first breakthrough? Um, you know what Yoga, Yogi Berra says? It's hard <laughs> to make predictions, especially about the future. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I don't know, but I'm confident that the world that we're facing in the next few years is going to look nothing like what we've seen in the past. I, I talk about the most revolutionary times since Noah's flood, which was a real event 12,000 years ago. Uh, that's the kind of history that we're making in the next few years and whether it, it will transform world cultures and human society and whether it transforms in the direction of centralized totalitarianism and a hell that nobody wants to live in or toward a decentralized future where we have the advantages of these wonderful technologies, but uh, local control and democracy and freedom, uh, it's up to us. I think we all have to play a role in creating the world that we want because there are uh, forces that are uh, hell-bent on creating the first alternative. Yeah. It's easy to resist them, at least verbally, in terms of doing something constructive to create the alternative future. It's sometimes that's, puzzling. That's our job is to create the alternatives. And it's quite a quite a task because, you know, we're also – conditioned to getting our food from the supermarket and picking up the uh, computer when we want to talk to somebody and our cell, cell phone lets us talk to anybody anywhere. Um, it's, it's, all, it's, all, it's all so easy. And, well, uh, maybe we're going to have to get 
back to work and do do some hard work on this. Creating and, local alternatives. Really, okay. that's, that's our job. That's our mm-hmm. job. We'll leave it there. All right. Thanks, Josh Middledorf. It's always good checking in with you. Yeah, it's, it's always fun to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Love your work. Keep it up. This is Truth Jihad Radio. Kevin Barrett here from truthjihad.com. We'll be back in the next hour with Ken Meyercord talking about more taboo topics. Stick around for that.